This episode contains graphic content. Listener discretion is highly advised. Hey guys, what's up and welcome to another episode of What the Actual F. My name is Harmony, and as always, I'll be your host here. Now, if this is your first time tuning into the podcast, welcome. It is so great to have you here. I myself think you chose a wonderful episode to join us in on. And to my reoccurring listeners, hello, my loves. I'm so glad to have you here for another week. Now, I don't want to babble too much because even though this is a podcast, you do get complaints if you talk too much. And isn't it So without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into this episode. Today, we're going to the movies. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. That's right, guys. We are going to be talking about movies today. As you guys know, my last two episodes, I've been doing something a little different. Most of the time, I will share with you a true crime case, as those are the things that often leave me wondering, what the fuck? However, there are other things in the world that I do find fascinating and eerie as well, and one of those are movies. I myself am quite a movie buff, but horror movies will always have my heart. And surprisingly, horror movies seem to be based on a lot of true stories. So today, we're going to talk about movies that are based on true stories. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the final countdown. The show starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Are you ready? It's showtime. Let's go ahead and start this one with a very famous and very well-known haunted house movie. It's the kind of house they don't build anymore. A relic of a time when the world wasn't in such a hurry. When there was still time for a little charm and elegance. It has stood empty for a long while. And at the price, it is a bargain for a growing young family. It is almost too good to be true. What do you think? I love it. James Brolin, Margot Kidder, Rod Steiger in the Amityville Horror. Now there was no way I could do this episode without talking about this iconic movie. Following the publication of a 1977 novel about the incident, a blockbuster film premiered in 1979. This film, known as the Amityville Horror, would spawn copious amounts of sequels, reboots, and knockoff films in every decade since. Now, whether you believe in ghosts or not, there is no denying that the Amityville Horror's notoriety really did begin with a truly terrifying story. He came, he opened the door, and he was screaming, come on, help me, somebody shot my mother and father. And everyone ran out of the bar, and that was it. They did all took go? off. No, I had to stay, I was 10 more. They all jumped in his car and took off. 
Despite having a comfortable childhood in Amityville, New York, Ronald DeFeo grew up emotionally troubled and in 1974, he murdered his entire family as they slept. Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. was born on September 26, 1951 in Brooklyn, New York. Butch was the oldest of five children, born to Ronald, a successful car salesman, and Luis DeFeo. Ronald Sr. worked at his father-in-law's Brooklyn Buick dealership and provided the family with a very comfortable upper-middle-class lifestyle. He was considered a very domineering authority figure and engaged in severe fights with his wife and children. To lay it down in layman's terms, Ronald Sr. was kind of an asshole to people. It was his way or the highway. The most frequent target of the abuse was the eldest child, Butch. Adding to his abuse when he got into school and was overweight, bullies began to relentlessly taunt him. As Butch grew older and began to mature, he began lashing out physically against his father as well as the very few friends that he managed to make. This greatly concerned his family and they decided to take him to a psychiatrist. However, Butch wasn't really feeling going to a psychiatrist so he decided to call it quits, stating that he didn't really need any help, instead he had a better idea. He told his parents that if they gave him cash and presents, he would behave. So they did just that, even buying him a $14,000 speedboat. Shockingly, money and gifts did not help his mental state. Just a little fun fact, money cannot buy happiness, but it can ease the burden of stress. But it's not going to make you happy in the end, I promise. So obviously, Butch's behavior only continued to increase and worsen over time. He threatened a friend of his with a rifle during a hunting trip. Then, later that day, acted as if nothing even happened. So by the age of 18, he has been expelled from school. His parents are providing him with guns, alcohol, drugs, and a brand new car. And his father still pays him weekly even if he doesn't come to work or does a piss-poor job. Basically, his father and his mother are trying to do anything they can to keep him from having any more outbursts. This still was not helping, however, and he attempted to shoot his father with a 12-gauge shotgun during a fight between his parents. Now, I don't mean he just pointed and shot off to the side to scare him. He aimed the gun at point-blank range and pulled the trigger. However, the gun malfunctioned and did not fire. This surprised his father so much that the argument immediately ended. The whole incident stunned and worried his father. Sadly, the incident truly was a foreshadow of more violent events to come. Combed the DeFeo's handsome three-story house for clues while divers explored the backyard swimming pool for the still-unfound murder weapon. Police have been questioning the son, Ronald, and now say he is being, quote, safeguarded. Investigators say without explanation that they now feel young DeFeo was in the house at the time of the murders, but they're not yet considering him a suspect. Okay, so now, in 1974, Butch is getting money even if he doesn't come into work, as just as long as he helps out. Not a lot at this point was really expected of him because they were just trying to make sure, you know, he's doing okay. So he's expelled from school, heavy drug user, collecting guns, has a brand new free car, getting money, and he gets upset because now he thinks the dealership isn't paying him enough for his lackluster job duties. This is when he devises a plan to embezzle money. He is tasked with collecting $20,000 from the dealership and depositing it into the bank. This is where he decides he will stage a robbery. With the help of an accomplice, the robbery goes 
on without a hitch. That is until the police come to question Butch. As soon as police start to ask him questions, Butch flies into a rage. At this point, he completely refuses to cooperate with the police. Now obviously, this throws up red flags to Ronald Sr., who goes to question Butch. As soon as his father questioned him, Butch became defensive and immediately threatened to kill him. Sadly, however, this time, he would follow through on his actions. There's one element in the usual mass murder story which seems to be missing from this case. There's no sense of fear in this community. No feeling of a mass murderer on the loose. People we talk to seem to feel that whatever was the motive for this crime, it had something to do with the family. It's not something that's going to return to bother anyone else. In on November 13th, 1974, in the early morning hours, Butch acted on his threat using a 35 caliber Marlin rifle from his secret gun stash. At first, he entered into his parents' bedroom and shot them both while they slept. He then entered into his brother's bedroom, shooting them as well in their beds. He then went into his sister's room and shot them point blank in their beds. All of these gruesome murders took place within 15 minutes. Now I'm gonna pause and just say something that has always been a little weird to me about this. Nobody heard the rifle's shots. This is an upscale neighborhood in New York in the dead of night, and nobody heard anything? That's a little weird. Now, after he's done brutally killing his whole family, he showers and prepares for work. So after he showers, he collects his bloody clothing and the murder weapon in a pillowcase and then dumps it in a storm drain on the way to work. He then arrives at the dealership around 6 a.m. Upon arrival, Butch is shocked that his father isn't there, so he decides, you know, he should probably call home and check on him. You know, just a good little, hey dad, I'm here, where you at? That's weird. Okay, well, uh, give me a call. I hope you're okay. Love you. Anywho, um, he was saying that he was bored around noon and decided that he was going to leave work so that he could spend the day with some friends. He then attempted to secure an alibi by telling each of the people that he visited that he couldn't seem to reach anyone at his house. Remember, because he was calling them since his dad never showed up at work. You know, it was really starting to worry him. This is when he decides to call a friend around 6 p.m. and act completely surprised that somebody apparently broke into his home and shot his entire family. Oh, also, um, fun little fact. When questioned on who he thought could do this to his family, Butch had a suspect. He told a detective that he believed that a mafia hitman by the name of Louis Fellini may have been responsible. Apparently, he claims that there was some sort of grudge between this Fellini guy and the family due to some work at the dealership. He then said that he was up all night, he couldn't really sleep, he tried watching TV, and then when he grew bored of this, he just decided to go into work early the next day. He did say that he truly believed his family was alive when he left for work. After searching the DeFeo home and taking into account Butch's testimony, the pieces of the puzzle wasn't really matching. It seemed more realistic that the murders had happened early in the morning before Butch had left for work. After all, the family was all still in their pajamas and in their beds. So when police tell Butch that his story seems a little fishy to say the least, he begins to change his story. He says Fellini, you guys remember the hitman that he claims did this to his family, did show up to the house that morning and actually held a revolver to his head. 
He then changed his story and said that Fellini and an accomplice had actually dragged him room from room to watch them murder his family. Butch finally broke down and said, once I started, I just couldn't stop. His trial began October 14, 1975, nearly a year from the date of the murders. He attempted to go with the insanity plea, saying that he heard voices telling him to kill his family. In fact, a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Daniel Schwartz supported the claim of insanity. He stated that Butch was neurotic and suffered from disassociative disorder. However, the prosecution's doctor stated that he simply suffered from antisocial personality disorder. With disassociative disorder, you cannot always be aware of your actions. As somebody who has DID, this is very true and is one of the worst things to deal with. It's kind of like watching your life and body live out a movie that you have no control over. However, with the prosecution stating that he has antisocial personality disorder, he is absolutely aware of his actions. And said actions are motivated by self-centered attitude. Ultimately, jurors agreed with this assessment from the prosecution's doctor and found him guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences and sent to Greenhaven Correctional Facility in Beekman, New York. And just last month, March 12, 2021, at age 69, Ronald DeFeo Jr. passed away in prison. Now here is where the base on a true story begins to get a little muddy. This is an amazing house. You are going to love it. Holy, this is the deal of a lifetime. So, what's the catch? There was a crime, a, a murder. In the house? several people, a family. Accused claims he heard voices coming from within the house. Now, let's talk about the Lutz family. In December of 1975, the Lutz couple and their three children moved into the old DeFeo home. This home was going to be their dream home. A big, beautiful waterfront home at a very fair price. And bonus, it also came with the previous owner's furniture. Woo, that's a plus. Now, of course, at this time, the Lutz were told they were not aware of the history of the home. A friend of George Lutz's learns about the history of the house and insists that they should get it blessed. At the time, both George and Kathy were not practicing in their religions, but they agreed to do so. George, however, was a bit hesitant. They got a father to come in and bless the home. He arrived to perform the blessing while George and Kathy were unpacking their belongings on the afternoon of December 18, 1975. As he began to flick holy water and say prayers, he heard a masculine voice demand that he get out. When leaving the home, he did not mention the incident to George and Kathy Lutz. <laughs> Who are you talking to? The girl who lives in my closet. And what's her name? Jody. On December 24th, the father calls George Lutz and advises him to stay out of the second floor room where he heard this mysterious voice. This was the former bedroom of Mark and John DeFeo. Following the visit to the house, the father allegedly developed a high fever and blisters on his hands similar to stigmata. I could be wrong, but last I learned stigmata wasn't blisters, it was holes in the hands. But again, I could be wrong, I'm not practicing in religion. So at first, George and Kathy experienced nothing unusual in the house. 
Now, when they would talk about their experiences later, it felt as though they were living in two different houses, as they were both having completely different experiences. In mid-January 1976, after another attempt at a house blessing by George and Kathy, they experienced what would turn out to be their final night in the house. Now, the Lutz have declined to give a full account of events that took place on this occasion. They simply describe it as, quote, too frightening. That was scary. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you every single thing that the Lutz experienced at the house. That is what the movies are for. But if you don't want to trust the movies because, frankly, it is Hollywood and they do over-embellish everything, there is also the book. So you guys can check out either of those and I don't have to sit here and tell you exactly what they claim happened for the next 20 minutes. But I can tell you how people have argued with their claims of what they experienced and state that is simply not true. So one of the claims from the Lutz is that the experience that they had ended up leaving their house damaged, like their locks were damaged, their windows were damaged. There was just, you know, flat out damage. I feel like I should say damage one more time. However, a new couple did move in in March of 1977 by the name of Jim and Barbara, and they bought the house for $55,000. By the way, that's a fucking steal. I don't know if you guys don't know what this house looks like on Ocean Avenue, but it is breathtaking and again, waterfront. And that was just a cool 55 grand. God, I wish houses were that price still. Anywho, let me move on and stop talking about inflation. The couple that moved in claims that this is just simply not true. There was no damage. There's also a room called the Red Room. However, according to the couple that moved in, the Red Room isn't really anything terrifying. It's just a small closet in the basement and would have been known to the previous owners as the Lutzes because it wasn't concealed in any way. And there was also a claim made in the book in chapter 11 that the house was built on a site where the local Shinecock Indians had once abandoned a bunch of like mentally ill and dying. Well, this was rejected by the local Native Americans, so their story is kind of coming apart. There was even a claim that they had seen cloven hoof prints in the snow, which researchers completely knocked out. Just said that, I'm sorry, this is not possible. And their neighbors said that for the whole time the Lutzes were there, it genuinely didn't seem as though anything was going on until they left. And another thing is that the story about the father coming to the house is a bit up in the air. The whole story behind it constantly changes from like when he arrived to what kind of car he was in to even what happened as he's driving away. But in a lawsuit later on filed, it is announced that the father never even came to the house. He only dealt with the Lutz on the phone. Now, George Lutz himself maintained that the events in the book were, quote, mostly true. Another fun fact is that George and Kathy both took a polygraph test that were done by some of the top, like, most experienced experts with polygraph results in the country and it was determined that they couldn't see that there were any lies. So either stuff really did go down in that house and it is haunted AF, or 
maybe a little bit of weird shit happen and it got a lot more blown out of proportion in their minds as they were probably afraid. They just moved into a house that a bunch of people were brutally murdered in. And if anything goes bump in the night, your head might run a little bit and go real creepy. Or it is really, truly all fake and none of it happened, but it really does make for a good story if I do say so myself. Despite the years of lawsuits and media harassment, the Lutzes maintain to this day that their experiences in Amityville were real. Some people have called our testimony about Amityville a hoax. There is nothing that I could say to them. There is nothing I could show them. There would be new evidence that this is a truth. It is a truth. It is my testimony. It is where I came from. And to judge another's testimony, not having experienced it, not having gone through it, or been touched by it, you don't have the right to. Yours is just an opinion. And um, the opinion doesn't hold water. So I'm going to leave it in your hands. Do you believe exactly what the Lutz say happened, or do you think it's all a hoax? And now a word from our sponsors. If you've got skin and if you've got hair, then I've got some products for you. How is that for an intro to an ad? On a real note, guys, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about one of my sponsors today. I'd like to tell you all about Doom and Groom. This company is a craft hair, skin, beard, and tattoo care company based in Denver, Colorado. All of their oils, balms, butters, and pomades are great for use from head to toe. Everything is made with the intention of keeping your hair and skin healthy and hydrated. And that's not a joke, guys. I have been using this product for about two and a half weeks now, and I have never had better feeling skin. And the tattoo balm is incredible. I have tattoos on my body that are upwards of 15 years old, and they look like they are maybe two months old. I will never recommend you a product that I have not personally tried or would not spend my own money on. And don't worry, these products are not just for women. All of Doom & Groom products are unisex, dye-free, chemical-free, plastic-free, and organic, packaged in a reusable metal tin. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Go over to doomandgroom.net. Take a gander at their products. See if anything catches your eye. I mean, after all, we might not all have hair, but we all have skin. And just because you're thirsty doesn't mean your skin needs to be. Haha, <laughs> come on. That was a good joke, guys. I know someone out there laughed, and that's all that matters. Head on over to doomandgroom.net and use the promo code HARMONYDOOM for 10% off of your purchase. Okay, now that business is out of the way, let's get back to the show, guys. And then... hey, I refuse to play your Chinese food mind games. And then... No! No, and then! No and then. 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 No, no and then. Maybe you're starting to piss me off, lady. And then I'm gonna come in there and I'm gonna put my foot in your ass if you say and then again. And then we have another sponsor. Right now, I'd like to take a minute to tell you guys about Fiji Tree of Life. They are a veteran-owned CBD and e-vehicle green business. As many people know, CBD is a gateway to relaxation and healing. 
Fiji is a company concerned with the promotion and responsible cannabis distribution and cultivation, ensuring that all products are based in environmentally green practices in the pursuit of a cleaner and healthier planet. So yes, for those of you wondering, this site does sell green. You can check out their online store at FijiTreeOfLife.com where they carry Delta 8, CBD oils, CBD beard care, and electric vehicles. I don't currently have a promo code for you today, but I will on the next episode as this week I am doing my very first event with Fiji Tree of Life. I will be down at the 420 Fest in Sarasota, Florida, celebrating everything that is green. If you guys are in the area, come on out and say hi. Until next week, why don't you guys go and check out FijiTreeOfLife.com and see the products they have to offer. And next week, I'll be back here with a nice little promo code to sweeten the deal for you. And for anyone wondering, Delta 8 is completely legal and has THC. So if you've ever been curious, now's your time to try. And we have one more sponsor. I want to give a shout out to Lux Nail Shop. They reached out to me and told me all about their beautiful wraps. These are incredibly high quality nail wraps. And let me tell you, they've got a bunch of options. All of their choices and designs are so adorable. I got a few and took them up to my nail salon and got my toes done and I love them. I didn't get a chance to put them on my acrylic nails, but I'm going to try that soon. So if you guys are curious about what Lux Nail Shop has to offer, go and check them out. You can head on over to luxnailshop.com. Now, just like with Fiji, I don't currently have any promo codes to give you when it comes to Lux Nail Shop, but their prices are very, very fair at just $3.99 for a whole set of wraps. And that is all of our sponsors for this episode. If you guys could go show them some support and check out what they have to offer, it would mean so much to me. And thank you to Doom and Groom, Fiji Tree of Life, and Lux Nail Shop. You all truly have such amazing products, and I'm honored to share them with everybody. Okay, let's get back to the show. Let's go ahead and move on to our next movie. This one's a personal favorite. Do you want to believe to it, Georgie? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the dancing clown. Pennywise? Yes, meet Georgie. Georgie, meet Pennywise. <laughs> now we aren't strangers, are we? That's fucking right, guys. It is based on a true story. Just because you didn't see those words flash on the screen doesn't mean it isn't true. However, you probably didn't see the words flash on the screen because it is very loosely based on a true person. Yeah, so that's the catch. It's not exactly based on a true story, but it's inspired by a very, very real person. On the 21st of December, 1978, police in Chicago were desperately trying to locate a missing teenager and had begun searching the home of a local maintenance contractor. When they executed that search warrant, they went in the crawl space and the very first shovel that they dug, they found human remains. The man they had in custody, 36-year-old John Wayne Gacy, was a popular socialite who spent his weekends dressed as a clown, entertaining children. That's right. 
John Wayne Gacy was the inspiration for Stephen King's Pennywise the Dancing Clown. For those of you who have no idea who John Wayne Gacy is, this was a prolific serial killer. John Wayne Gacy was born March 17, 1942, and this piece of shit was a sex offender and known as the Killer Clown, who assaulted and murdered at least 33 young men and boys. Now, why does this tie in to Pennywise? Well, as you know, Pennywise was a clown. And Gacy would regularly perform at children's hospitals and charitable events as Pogo the Clown or Patches the Clown. What are you doing in the sewer? Oh, storm blew me away. Blew the whole circus away. <laughs> Can you smell the circus, Georgie? There's peanuts, cotton candy, hot dogs, and... Popcorn? Popcorn! Is that your favorite? Uh-huh. I do! <laughs> because they pop. <laughs> pop, 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 pop. <laughs> pop, pop, pop. Now, unlike Pennywise, who committed an assortment of terrifying crimes in the sewers of Derry, all of Gacy's murders took place in his ranch home in Chicago, Illinois. However, also unlike Pennywise, Gacy didn't have magic tricks and supernatural abilities to lure his victims where he wanted. But he would get them to come home with him, and then he would use the disguise of magic to make them comfortable often asking them to do a demonstration using handcuffs, which he was trying to show them some sort of trick. This is when he would begin to rape and torture his captives before eventually killing them by asphyxiation or strangulation. 26 of Gacy's victims were buried in the crawlspace of his home and three others were buried elsewhere on his property. Four were discarded in the Des Plaines River. Gacy was also convicted of sodomy of a teenage boy in Waterloo, Iowa in 1968 and was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, but only served 18. Again, not like we need to point out how broken our justice system is, but there you go. It breaks my heart, by the way, how many people are sentenced to a long amount of time for sexual crimes and then they get out in just the span of months only to turn to murder. I'm just saying, if they're going to assault somebody, maybe you should lock them up and throw the fucking key away. That's all I gotta say. Especially children. So now that you know how I feel about this piece of shit, let me continue to tell you about him. Gacy murdered his first victim in 1972. And by the end of 1975, he had killed two more people. Then, after divorcing his second wife in 1976, he added 30 more victims to his roster. It was the investigation into the disappearance of a teenager by the name of Robert Peist that led to Gacy's arrest on December 21, 1978. His conviction for 33 murders was the most by one individual in United States history at the time. Y'all, okay, seriously, 33 and now it's higher? I don't even have one. I mean, come on. I am really slacking. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I would never tell you guys my real number. Gacy was sentenced to death on March 13, 1980. Now, 14 minutes after the hour. 
36-year-old John Wayne Gacy has pleaded not guilty to charges of murdering seven boys and young men. And a judge in Chicago has ordered that Gacy be examined by a psychiatrist. Twenty-seven bodies have been uncovered at Gacy's suburban Chicago home. And the defendant's lawyer says his trial should be held somewhere else. More on that from Bob Farr. Now the question is, can accused mass murderer John Wayne Gacy get a fair trial? Night after night, television viewers watch the seemingly endless procession of bodies taken from the Gacy house. The county's medical examiner even went on a radio interview program and said the suspect, who reportedly confessed that he killed 32 young men, is sane. Here we have a case for electric chair, perhaps. You think so? I, I most definitely do. While Gacy was on death row at Maynard Correction Center, he spent most of his time painting. And you yourself can most likely find and buy a Gacy painting, if that's like your thing, which I'm not gonna judge you because I have an original newspaper print of Gacy's arrest when it was announced. So I get it, we like weird things. Gacy was executed by lethal injection at Stateville Correction Center on May 10th, 1994. <laughs> If you'll come with me, you'll float too. 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 You'll float Ralph Sarchi is a retired NYPD sergeant and traditionalist Catholic demonologist. He has written a book, Beware the Night, which details many of his paranormal investigations. It was these accounts that were the later basis of the film, Deliver Us from Evil. There's two types of evil in this life, Officer Sarchi. Secondary evil, the evil that men do, and primary evil, which is something else entirely. I've seen some horrible things. Nothing that can't be explained by human nature. Then you haven't seen true evil. Deliver Us From Evil is about a New York police officer, Ralph Sarchi, a.k.a. Eric Bana, struggling with his own personal demons and begins to investigate a series of very disturbing and inexplicable crimes. He then joins forces with an unconventional priest Edgar Ramirez, schooled in the rituals of exorcism to combat the frightening and demonic possessions that are terrorizing their city. Ma'am, what's wrong with you? You know this lady? She's one of my charges. I'm a Jesuit priest. I believe Jane's problem to be spiritual. You think she's possessed? I'm sorry, Padre. She's gone the lonely been where she belongs. <laughs> Sarchi served 18 years as an NYPD sergeant in the South Bronx precinct and was a member of the street crime unit working undercover stopping in-progress crimes. He describes himself as a committed Christian and possesses a relic of the True Cross. Ralph Sarchi, along with his partner Mark Stabinski, carry with them wooden Christian crosses and holy water when called to tackle, quote, demonic infestation around the city. He even would regularly meet and accompany Ed and Lorraine Warren on their cases. Sarchi states that demonic possession can be identified by signs, including unnatural strength, 
speaking in different languages, having knowledge of events that no one would have any way of knowing, and a woman speaking in a man's voice and a person making animal sounds. You know, I've never heard that if a woman spoke with a male's voice, it meant that she was possessed. I don't even know if that sounds like a man's voice. I'm sorry, I've just really never heard anyone say that if a woman speaks with a male voice, she must be possessed. Okay, I'm sorry. I've just never honestly heard that if a woman has a man's voice, she's possessed. What about if a man has a woman's voice? Is he possessed? I have questions. Seriously, like if I'm just walking down the street and I hear a woman with a very deep manly voice, should I grab a cross and start yelling the power of Christ compels you? Like, I've got to know. So besides that discrepancy, let me continue to tell you more about this. Now again, I'm not saying the man doesn't know his facts about possession. I myself have not encountered a person possessed by a demon, so I don't know. So anyways, Beware of the Night was published in 2001. It's also titled Deliver Us from Evil and was co-written by Lisa Collier Cool. This book was all about his career as an NYPD cop and, you guessed it, a demonologist. So here is the synopsis for the book. A 17-year NYPD veteran, Ralph Sarchi, works out of the 46th Precinct in New York, South Bronx. But it is in his other job that he calls The Work, investigating cases of demonic possession and assisting in the exorcisms of humanity's most ancient and most dangerous foes. Now he discloses for the very first time his investigation into incredible true crimes of inhumane evil that were never explained, solved, or understood except by Sarchi and his partner. Schooled in the rituals of exorcism and an eyewitness to the reality of demonic possession, Ralph Sarchi has documented a riveting chronicle of the inexplainable that gives a new shape to the shadows of the dark. We need to perform a full ritual exorcism on this man. But we need time to prepare. We don't have the time. I need him to tell me where my family is. Leave me alone with him. I can't do that, Father, not while he's under arrest. Do what you gotta do. Don't worry about me. I'll help you. All right. We'll perform the exorcism now. Get the fuck out of here. Deliver Us From Evil was released on July 2nd, 2014 from Screen Gems and Sony Pictures. This film followed Sarchi into the paranormal investigations he immersed himself in, all the while taking care of his family and working midnight to 8 a.m. However, not many of the events recounted in the book actually remained in the film, as most have been changed and reimagined by the screenwriters and producers of the film. Even though the film drew in mixed reviews, it was a massive success in the box office where it grossed over $87 million. There are six stages to exorcism. Pressions, pretense, breakpoint, voice, clash, and expulsion. During each stage, you will do exactly as I say and nothing else. Don't talk to it, don't listen to it, just read and pray. Do you understand? Yeah, I got it. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? Is everybody in? So though Deliver Us From Evil is based on a true story, it is a loose adaptation. I highly recommend you check out the movie and read the book. Both are very amazing, especially if you're into the supernatural like I am. 
Okay, so I love horror movies and I watched this movie when I was probably about five years old. And to find out that it's based on a true story just makes it even more disturbing. Everyone has a birthday they'll always remember. Can we open my presents now, Mommy? A good guy! I knew it! Hi, <laughs> I'm Chucky. He's something, isn't he? This is Andy's. The year is 1998, and the movie is Child's Play. A single mother gives her son a much-sought-after doll for his birthday, only to discover that it is possessed by the soul of a serial killer. Just like in the movie It, where Pennywise is modeled after Gacy, Chucky is modeled after another doll. And I'm not talking about Annabelle. No, Annabelle, move over. I'm going to tell you about Robert the doll. The story of Robert the Doll dates back to the early 1900s when a young boy named Eugene Robert Otto was given one-of-a-kind handmade doll by a servant that worked for his parents in his home. Eugene, who everyone called Jean, named the doll Robert and quickly became attached to his new friend. The home where Eugene lived, now called the Artist House, is located at 534 Eaton Street and was built in 1890 and 1898. It was here that Eugene was given Robert the doll, where a friendship that lasted throughout his lifetime had begun and was forged. While he seemed like an ordinary cloth doll, it wasn't long before Robert was involved in strange and somewhat terrifying events. The first time something kind of out of the ordinary happened was when Jean woke up one night at around 10 years old and awoke to see Robert the doll sitting at the end of his bed staring at him. <laughs> nope, mm-mm, bunt that thing in the trash can. Moments later, his mother was woken up by his screams for help and the sounds of furniture being overturned in her son's room. Jean cried for help, begging for his mother to rescue him, and when she finally was able to unlock the door and open it, she saw poor Jean curled up in fear on his bed. His room was in shambles, and Robert the doll was sitting at the foot of the bed. Now, nobody knows for sure what truly happened in Jean's bedroom, because after all, Robert is just a doll, right? Maybe not, because the weird and inexplicable things don't just stop at that one occurrence. Jean's parents would often find their son upstairs talking to the doll and getting responses back in a totally different voice. Ooh, if you ask Ralph Sarchi, that boy is possessed. However, the boy wasn't making Robert's voice. There were witnesses that saw the doll speak and even witnessed the expression on his face changing. Witnesses also reported that they would hear Robert the doll giggling and running up and down the stairs and he was often noticed to be witness sitting in a window staring outside. Robert continued to live with Jean throughout his lifetime, and after Jean's parents died, he moved back into their home with his wife, Anne. This is when Jean decided the doll needed a room of his very own and placed him in the upstairs room that had a window overlooking the street. Now, Jean's wife wasn't really happy with Robert the doll, and she really wanted him just to be locked up and kind of kept out of sight. Basically, so he could do no harm. Finally, Jean conceded to what his wife asked and put Robert away. As you could guess, Robert wasn't very happy with this. Soon, visitors would complain of hearing footsteps in the attic and sounds of someone maybe pacing back and forth and devilishly giggling to themselves. 
Neighborhood children reported seeing Robert watching them from the window in the upstairs bedroom and told accounts of the doll actually mocking them as they walked by on their way to school. When Gene heard this, he immediately went to investigate, knowing that he had locked Robert in the attic and that there was no way he could be sitting in the window in the upstairs bedroom. But to his complete shock, when he opened the door to the bedroom, there was Robert sitting on the rocking chair by the window. Gene continued to lock Robert back up into the attic several times, each time discovering him again sitting by the window in the same upstairs bedroom. Gene Otto died in 1974, and when a new owner moved into the house on Eaton Street, their 10-year-old daughter was delighted to find Robert the doll in the attic. I am Chucky, the killer doll, and I dig it! Her delight soon ended when she claimed that Robert the doll was alive and that he wanted to hurt her. She would wake up often in the middle of the night screaming in fear and told her parents that Robert had moved about in her room. It wasn't long before Robert the doll was eventually given away. And for those of you wondering, Robert the doll is currently located at the Fort East Martello Museum in Key West and is considered to be one of the most haunted dolls in America. Many people believe that the origin of Robert's evil lies from the servant who gave Jean Otto the doll. It's claimed that her bosses, Jean's parents, were not the best to her, and in order to punish them, she infused the doll with voodoo and black magic, then gifted their son with it, only to wreak havoc on their lives, but mainly their most precious thing to them, their son. That might explain the many mysterious and frightening experiences that people have had with Robert the doll, but if so, wouldn't the haunting end when the owners died because, you know, they jinxed them? I, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the belief, but it didn't. It didn't stop. It, it kept going. Robert is still very active. Robert the doll continues to taunt and scare those who come to view him, especially guests to the museum who attempt to take photos. Many say that their photos all of a sudden become inoperable when they try to take a photo of Robert, only for them to begin working again once they leave the museum. Even though Robert sits inside of a glass case, he still instills fear and discomfort to museum staff and visitors. Staff members even report that Robert's facial expression changes and they hear demonic giggling and have even seen Robert put his hand up to the glass. Hi, I'm Chucky and I'm your friend till the end. <laughs> that one's a classic. So there you have it. Chucky was based on a real life doll. Well, a real doll who is said to be alive. And if you're curious to know more about Robert the doll, you can look him up and you can also go visit him in Key West for yourself. I myself really do want to go check him out at the museum that's just a few hours from me. And if I ever do, I'll let you guys know just how creepy he really is. And if any of you have ever visited Robert the doll, send me an email and tell me what your experience was like. I would love to know. Well, here we are, the end of the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of three movies that are based on true, terrifying stories. I've got about three more pages of movies that are based on true stories. So look forward to another one of these episodes in the future. And also guys, remember, if you are in or near the Sarasota area this weekend on April 24th, head on over to the 420 Fest. I will be there at the Fiji Tree of Life tent. Come say hi. 
And please check out doomandgroom.net and all of their products that they have to offer. And while you're at it, head on over to Lux Nail Shop as well and treat yourself to a few nail wraps. I really do hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I love creating these for you every single week. You guys keep showing up here every week and I will keep creating these for you. If you guys have anything you'd like me to look into, please send an email to whattheactualeffharmony at gmail.com. You can also follow me on all of my social medias by either searching Oh Hey It's Harmony or Harmony Miller. You can't miss me. I'm the short girl covered in tattoos. I hate goodbyes. <laughs> all right, that's it for today. I will talk to you next week on the next episode of What the Actual F. Love you and stay safe. I